You've probably heard the old saying that church would be great if not for all the people. Well, I can appreciate the humor and the truth of that statement, but in this very strange time in which we find ourselves, that saying really comes into stark focus. For us, all the elements of church have been taken away. We worship not as a faith family, but sitting on a chair in our living room. We listen to the sermon, we watch it on the same device that can take us all over the internet. Maybe we spend our Sunday mornings doing something for ourselves, working around the house, and we engage in church when it's convenient for us. Even the Lord's Supper, communion, it's a, a solo activity, not a communal practice. Almost all the elements that make church, church, have been taken away from us. But there's one element that remains, the people. In some sense, that's what we have left. And I think at whatever time we're able to meet face-to-face -face again, that has to be our priority, people. Reconnecting with and encouraging each other in a way that we have not been able to do over these past few weeks. And the, the people of church, that's really what I want us to talk about today. Today we're going to wrap up our series, The Waiting Game, wrapping up our study of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to look at the, the last words that Paul and the other apostles share with the church and it's fitting that the last words of this book are an encouragement related to people, to relationships. If you tuned in last week, you know we talked about the future events that are outlined in 1 Thessalonians. We talked about the return of Christ for his church and the judgment of the world. And as Paul and the other apostles wrap this letter up, they leave us with some final instructions. So today, as we wrap up our study, we're going to learn one more final thing about waiting. We're going to learn how to wait in light of Christ's return. If we know that the rapture could happen at any time, how do we live now? How do we live out our waiting game? We do it in three ways, with three areas of focus. We wait with our leaders, we wait with each other, and we wait with the Lord. Those three topics will guide our time together this morning. And so we begin by looking at the Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, and to regard them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So this first section tells us how we wait in light of the Lord's return. And first of all, we wait with our leaders. In light of the Lord's return, we wait with our leaders. In my spare time, I've been reading a book about the American Revolution, and uh, it was a revolution not just because one group of people revolted and overthrew the leadership of the other, but it was a revolution in large part because of the thinking behind it, the ideas that drove the Americans, this radical idea that everyone has an opinion that matters, democratic thinking. Now for us who are steeped in that same kind of democracy, this first section can be a hard pill to swallow. And especially now in this time of COVID, when our governmental leaders are telling us more and more what we can and can't do, then this kind of command becomes challenging. And all too often we carry that same kind of skepticism and distrust over to our church leaders. But that's exactly what Paul is encouraging us in here. These first two verses are actually just one sentence in the original language. Paul asked the church to recognize and to highly regard our leaders. Other translations say respect and esteem our leaders. 
Now, this is an especially timely command for us at Trinity because we're on the brink of new leadership. We're, we're closer and closer each day to a new lead pastor, but we're also appointing elders for the first time in Trinity's history. That's a lot of new leadership. And we're called not just to, to recognize them, not to begrudgingly acknowledge them, but we're called to highly regard them, to, to view them with the utmost regard. In fact, this word that's translated highly regard, it's, it's the highest form of comparison possible. So we put our highest opinions on them. And I just want to take a moment to share with you a bit about our elder selection process. So elders are appointed, they're not elected, so the process is a bit unique. We started at Trinity by soliciting nominations from you, from our faith family. And our current board, they considered all those nominations. We prayed about them. We gathered our own thoughts about each of those people, even about the current board members. We didn't take anything for granted. And yet, since elders are appointed by elders, the final determination was left in the hands of your elders, your pastors, Pastor Thad, Pastor Edgar, and myself. We examined these candidates in detail to bring to you final set of candidates to approve. And we'll do that at our upcoming annual ministry update. It's an exciting process. And let me tell you one thing I've learned in this process. Each and every one of our elder candidates has at least one thing in common. They're all humans. They're all flawed people. And yet God tells us to recognize them as our leaders and to give them the highest possible regard. We're trusting them to guide our church. And for democratic people, that's challenging. We all think, well, don't I have a right to my opinion? And we all think, I mean, leaders make mistakes. Shouldn't we be careful? I mean, it just seems wise, right? And the answer is yes, but. Yes, it's true that leaders are human and leaders make mistakes. In fact, as I've talked to our prospective elders, that's one thing that has really encouraged me. They all know they're not perfect people. And yet, if we believe that we're in the waiting game, meaning that we believe that God is ultimately in control of our world, then we have to also admit that God is ultimately in control of our church, and He's ultimately in control of our leaders. So we have to believe that God is ultimately in control of choosing our church leadership. And that means we can highly regard them with faith, trusting that God will guide them as they guide our church. So even though our leaders are human, and even though we all, do, we all do get a voice in what happens in our church and in our world, ultimately the highest regard we can give our leaders is to willingly submit to them. The author of Hebrews says, We should obey them in such a way as to bring them joy. Look at Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So our submission to our leaders should be in such a way that the leaders can serve us with joy. Ultimately, leaders are accountable to God for the people that God called them to lead. We have the responsibility to lead well, to shepherd well, and all of us as church members have the responsibility of being good followers. Now, there's some tension here for sure. Many of us, we've been hurt by church leaders. Maybe I've even hurt you in the past. Church leaders are humans. So I'm not telling you to disregard wisdom. I'm simply saying that there's a tension here. And what we want to lean towards is the side of trusting God. Trusting that God has put leaders in place for a purpose. And we don't want to dodge the good purposes that God has for us. 
And there's another tension here, too, the tension of putting leaders up on a pedestal, honoring them so much that we enter this cult of personality and just follow people blindly. We make church about our own leaders. I mean, you've seen that kind of thing before, I'm sure. And that's not what we're talking about here in this passage. Again, the ultimate focus is on God. He's in control. He guides us and our church and our leaders. So 1 Thessalonians encourages us to highly regard our leaders, but it also tells us something about the work of leaders themselves. The passage tells us they labor, they lead, and they admonish. Specifically, it says they labor among us. That's the key antidote to distrust of leaders. They don't sit up on high and pass down commands, but they labor among us. They're relationally connected to the church body so that we're all co-laborers. We know them and we're known by them. At the same time, part of the role of leaders is to lead you in the Lord. So they labor among us, but we also have to recognize they're called to do something else. They're called to lead us. And I think this is where we often see a breakdown. God appoints leaders so they can lead us in the Lord. And yet so often human leaders begin to lead us in their own power and wisdom, not so much in the Lord. So we naturally see a breakdown. We start to distrust leaders and then the whole system is called into question. But I think understanding not just that they labor among us, but also that they lead us in the Lord is a very helpful thing. And I think a big part of the breakdown comes from a misunderstanding of what church leaders should be doing. In another one of Paul's letters, he lays out very clearly that pastors and church leaders have a very specific role. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. And Jesus himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Right there, Paul tells us that the role of pastors, teachers, other gifted leaders is not to do the work of ministry. See, in our modern church culture, we tend to think that we hire pastors or we appoint leaders to go and do the work of ministry. Paul tells us something different here. Look at the passage again. And he gave himself some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So the job description for church leaders is quite clear. We're not to do the ministry, but instead we're to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's you. Every believer is made holy a saint, like we talked about earlier in this series. And every believer is a minister. So church leaders have the job of equipping the saints. And all the saints have the job of doing the work of ministry. And notice the emphasis at the beginning of this. Jesus himself gave some. He personally involves himself in the process of setting apart pastors and church leaders, not to do the ministry, but to prepare God's people. It's so important to Jesus that all believers do the work of ministry. Understanding this helps us understand how we should relate to church leaders. Not only do they labor among us, because they're saints too, so they have work to do, but they also lead us. And that leadership looks in part like equipping the church to do the work of ministry. Yet so many churches get confused in this area. And that confusion is what breeds the tension and unrest. And I think part of this tension and confusion comes because some, some faulty vocabulary has infiltrated the church. Let me explain what I mean. When most people hear words like clergy or 
lay people. We have a certain image in our minds, a certain definition. But the definitions in our minds are very far off from the original intended meaning. Churches hire clergy to do the work of ministry because they think of the clergy as a special select group of people, people who have some special connection to God, people who are specially equipped to care for folks, offer spiritual insight. In fact, you can even find clergy parking spots at hospitals and that kind of thing, right? The term clergy, it comes from a Greek word kleros, which simply means inheritance. So in the Bible, the term kleros, it doesn't apply to some special group of people who do the work of ministry. In fact, the word is used to describe all believers. Paul tells us that the Father, God, has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. So that word was never intended to create some group of super spiritual leaders who do all the ministry. In reality, those clergy parking spaces, they're for all of us. Just don't blame me if they try to tow your car. Now there's another term that gets tossed around a lot. Sometimes we talk about clergy as a separate group from lay people. Like there's professional Christians, the clergy, and then there's the rest of us, just lay people, right? But that's another term that's problematic. In the Bible, that term lay comes from a Greek word leos. It actually refers to God's special people. So the, the laos, they're not somehow less than others. In fact, the Bible tells us the laos are God's special people. The Apostle Peter tells us, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're all included in that, that chosen special people. So, so both these terms, kleros and leos, they apply to all of us. We're all people of God's possession, and we all enjoy the inheritance as his children. So when you think about it, your pastors are lay people, and each of you is a member of the clergy. See, these terms have been so confused and misunderstood in churches that all they do is create unhealthy divides. The people of God are unnecessarily split into two groups. Lay people who have to tolerate work in unspiritual professions so they can pay clergy to do spiritual work. But this is all wrong. There should be no divide in the body of Christ. First, because all work is spiritual, and second, because the gospel creates a new group, a new humanity, where we're all one because of Christ's work in us. Theologian Edmund Clowney, he says it beautifully. He says, spiritual dominion by the princes of the church is doubly impossible. Christ the King is with his people, his people are kings with Christ. Can any officer outrank an ordinary Christian who shares Christ's throne and will judge angels? Christ's total rule obliterates hierarchy. The mediator does not need mediators. So our, our leaders, they labor among us. They lead us in the Lord. They have one more role that's outlined here. They admonish us. And that word means to warn. It gets to the heart of, of watching the church carefully, warning us when we slip into dangerous places. And, and I say if, not when, because it does happen. It will happen. Leaders deserve respect in large part because they have a powerful job among us to carefully watch the church and admonish us. And this reality, this fresh understanding of church leaders, of clergy and lay people, all of this leads us right into the last portion of this section of 1 Thessalonians. Paul goes on to tell the church that we respect our leaders by being at peace with each other. That's the end of verse 13. There's a direct relationship between 
recognizing leadership and maintaining peace in the church. And I think the key to that is proper understanding of the role of leaders, laboring among us, leading us in the Lord, but also a proper recognition of our role as the body of Christ. We all do the work of ministry. So while we're waiting, we're waiting with our leaders, God-given leaders who equip all of us to do the work of ministry. And in the next section, we wait with each other. Look at me at uh, chapter 5, verse 14. And we exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Now, interestingly, one commentary I read said that these are all commands for church leaders. That's interesting to think about. But I think it's obvious that these commands are things that we can all benefit from. We can all wait well with each other if we all pay attention to these commands. And the first command, it actually does tie into our leaders a bit. In the first section, one of the things leaders do is they admonish. You saw that in verse 12. They admonish, meaning they, they warn us about sin in our lives. So that happens in a variety of ways. Through preaching, sometimes, but mostly through relationships. We talked earlier in this study about how helpful accountability is, those kinds of loving relationships that we all need in our lives. And here in verse 14, Paul tells us to warn each other. In fact, that's the same word as admonish up above. So the, the leaders have the role of it, but we all have that same role for each other. I'm so grateful for my growth group, the presence that they are in my life. As a group leader and as a pastor, I have the role of admonishing. Yet at the same time, they all fill that role for me too. We have a trusting relationship such that each of us can lovingly speak to the others in those kinds of ways. That's exactly the kind of thing Paul's talking about here. He also tells us to comfort the discouraged. And I think that's particularly valuable for us to consider at this time. There's a lot of discouraging stuff right now. Things that can't happen. Things that won't happen. People we can't see. Relationships we can't experience. All kinds of things like that. So we could all use some comfort. In fact, next Sunday we're going to celebrate a special group of our faith family that has faced some extra discouragement. We're going to celebrate our graduating seniors. And I think in celebrating them, we're going to be living out this passage. At the same time, though, I think we're going to find encouragement for ourselves who are discouraged. That's how these things happen so often. In offering comfort to others, we get comforted ourselves. And looking out for each other, comforting each other is so critical. It leads directly into the next thing this passage teaches us. It tells us to help the weak and be patient with everyone. Now, not many of us want to willingly describe ourselves as weak, but often we're a lot more weak than we'd like to admit. And especially at this time, this COVID season, it tries the strength of all of us. And this phrase, help the weak, it literally means to, to cling to or hold on to the weak. We don't want to let them go. You know, in our culture, we're quick to discard the weak, to cover over weakness, to eliminate it as quickly as possible. But here, we hold on to the weak, not letting them go. And that, again, is a special word for this time, this time when we talk about physically weak, at-risk people, but also those who are spiritually weak. I was talking to another pastor here in the area this, this past week, and both of us were lamenting the fact that a real casualty of this time of isolation, this church-at-home time, 
is those who are spiritually weak, those who are just on the, the sidelines of church involvement, the fringes of church relationships. Those are the people who are suffering from this, much more than those of us who are highly connected or, or highly invested in church. We need to do what we can to help everyone, and especially the weak. We need to practice patience with all, with those who think and feel differently with us, with those who are struggling in different ways than us. We've got to be patient with everyone, even just with folks who annoy us for no good reason. Right? I love the way that Paul and the other apostles frame it out earlier in this book. At the beginning of the letter, they say, we give thanks to God all the time for every one of you. Not just begrudgingly patient with everyone, but genuinely thankful for all the people of the church, strong or weak. And you got to understand, this is not a situation when a Thessalonian could decide to leave the church on one street, walk over to a different church on the other. No. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they're working with the assumption that everybody belongs. You can't just cast people off. So all of us have to hold on to the weak. We have to be patient with everyone. This level of patience, this holding on to people, that's what allows us to fulfill the next part of this section. The next part says, verse 15, See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. When we hold on even to the weakest among us, we learn what's good for all of us. And as we mutually pursue relationships with each other, then over time, we actually become what is good for each other, each of us doing our best to look out for each other. So we come to the third area of focus. As we wait, we wait with our leaders, we wait with each other, and now this third section, we wait with the Lord. Wait with the Lord. That's the focus of this third section. Look with me at verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Don't stifle the Spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. These are another set of commands, another set of short bits of instruction, and they all have to do with our relationship with the Lord. There's just a couple of things I want to highlight here. First, this section tells us to pray constantly. And the idea here is that we're, we're continually in communication with the Lord, continually aware of our relationship with Him and with His presence in our lives. So as individuals, we're constantly praying, constantly expressing our dependence on God, constantly growing in that way. And yet also as a church, we want to be in prayer constantly. And in the time of Jesus, a common way to refer to the synagogue was as a house of prayer. Jesus himself uses those words talking about God's temple. Well, these days we've elevated worship and preaching to the primary spots of our church gatherings, and those things are important, of course. But prayer, constant prayer, should really be the mark of the people of God. It should be a critical piece of how we live and how we wait with the Lord. Another very important aspect of this last section is simply this. Our relationship with the Lord is the one relationship that drives all the other relationships. We can't properly relate to anyone if we don't have a proper relationship with the Lord. We can't willingly and joyfully serve alongside and submit to church leaders if we don't have a right relationship with the Lord. We can't get along well with each other if we don't have a right relationship with the Lord. There's no way that we'll be patient with each other or that we'll hold on to the weak 
if we fail to recognize that we are weak apart from God. When we were at our weakest, God sent his son Jesus to hold on to us, not wanting any of us to perish, but wanting all of us to have eternal life in him. Our relationship with the Lord is the one that drives all the other relationships. And it's only because of the gospel that we can relate to each other in a healthy way. If not for the saving work, the regenerating work that Jesus has done for us, then these lists of commands would simply be piling one burden on top of another. If not for the work of Jesus in us making us new, there's no way we'd be able to pray constantly or rejoice always. We'd be helpless to try to do those things on our own, continually failing at them. But God loved us enough to send his son Jesus to make us new, to make us capable of loving him and loving each other well. We talked earlier in the series how God has made us holy. He's justified us from the moment we accept the work of Jesus on our behalf. We're made holy. But as we talked about earlier in this book, there's still a process, the process of sanctification. That's where God's Spirit works in us to keep us growing, to keep working in our relationships so that we be can begin to live into these commands. And as you probably know, the way that God uses to teach us is very often through difficulties, putting us in situations where we have to choose to rejoice always because it just doesn't come naturally to us, or putting us in situations where we need to pray constantly because there's nothing else for us to do. So God is at work, His Spirit is at work, sanctifying us, making us holy. And we shouldn't quench or stifle the Spirit at work in us because that work helps us wait with all these other relationships. Our relationship with God is the relationship that drives every other relationship we have. And so we've come to the conclusion of this letter, this letter that has so much to teach us about our own waiting game, our own time of waiting. And notice this final paragraph, it starts with a great prayer. It says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. As we learn to wait in light of the Lord's return, we can take comfort and confidence in the fact that that God will continue his sanctifying work in each of us. That when he returns, we'll be fully sanctified, fully holy. And we can wait with a confident hope that he who calls you is faithful. He will do it. We can wait with the knowledge that God's will for us and for each other will be done. We wait with our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, and our relationship with our leaders. All those things give us confidence God is working on his plan for our sanctification while we wait for the Lord's return. Now there's one more thing in this letter, one more little verse that I just have to mention. I can't let it go, especially in this quarantine time. Look with me at the very end of the letter, verse 26. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. Now this is the kind of verse you might want to cross-stitch on a pillow or something, but but it's actually a fascinating little word of encouragement in this book. We've talked all through this series about how important our relationships with each other are. And here at the end, there's a great visual image of what holy relationships can look like. And this whole idea of a holy kiss, it's really interesting because it's unique to the church. In the ancient Roman world, kissing was not all that common. 
Spouses didn't kiss that, kiss that much at all, especially not in public. No way. And even in ancient Judaism, kissing was really reserved only for family members. So this is not just a practice that the church borrowed from the larger society. The, the, the holy kiss, it's a unique way for the church to demonstrate a true bond, a true fellowship that can only come from our mutual relationship with the Lord. So, greet each other with a holy kiss. Now, I thought about moving up to kiss the camera so I could virtually kiss each of you. I'm not going to do that. I don't want to give kids nightmares, right? You can insert your own joke about social distancing here, but, but the principle of the holy kiss, it still stands. The church family has a unique relationship to each other, a relationship that's driven by our relationship with the Lord. It shapes all our other relationships, even the way we relate to our leaders. So let's greet each other with a holy kiss. And finally, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let me pray for you. God, I am so grateful for this church, this group of holy people that is uh, being equipped to do the work of ministry, being equipped to relate to you, to relate to each other well, and especially at this time as we are uh, bringing aboard new leaders, Lord, we want to be uh, especially grateful for the work that you're doing there. Give us what we need to relate to them well. Give them what they need to labor among us and to lead us in the Lord. So there is no separation between clergy and lay people, but there are groups of people that are doing the work of ministry and equipping each other to do the work of ministry, Lord. And finally, we want to be in such great relationships that uh, even the idea of a holy kiss is not that weird to us because we're that intimately connected to each other, loving each other well, holding on to the weak. And we pray all these things by the power of your Son who gives us new life. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.